1: Welcome everybody to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by, by usual, Abby Duty and Curtis Wister, the Annie Duke and Edward Thorpe to my Doyle Brunson. How are you guys doing today?
2: Hey. Hi. How are you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, for, for those that are not inclined to, so these are, Edward Thorpe was actually one, one of the first card counters out there in, in the casinos, so he was winning money there. Annie Duke and Doyle Brunson are the uh, poker stars, so they're, they're on the poker. So we're, why I explain that is today we are talking Powerball you know I, I think the, the one thing that we we see and we hear about is you know imagining like hey tomorrow's powerball drawing has hit one billion dollars. Right, and and that of course starts the water cooler talk, and you know, geez, what would you do if you won it? What what would, what dreams would you have? What's the first thing you'd spend the money on? All of those things really start to perk up, right? People get very excited, and you know, and and the idea of winning that money, right? And obviously, the the, the odds are low. It's right one in I think uh, two hundred ninety two million or something mm. is the odds of winning the Powerball. But but if you want it right? You wouldn't wouldn't have to ever worry about money again, right? Well, I, I know that it might be a little bit more difficult than that, right? And we wanted to talk about hey, if you did win it, what's some good things that you could do? What's some good money management that you might want to think about? What are some things from a legal perspective? What are some things from a tax perspective? What about financial planning? How would you you kind of structure it in kind of this kind of case study that we're going to do here today? And how would you think about all that so that the moment that you win the money that you're not being claimed or descended on by vultures – who everybody wants a, a hefty helping of your winnings, right? And, you know, the statistic we see is is uh, 70% of lottery winners go broke. Mm-hmm. And even at a billion dollars, right, is that that happens. So how do we avoid this term, the lottery curse victim? And, and so that's what we want to talk about a little bit today is thinking about, putting together how we do this, how we structure it. And a very extreme example with Powerball. Mm. But there's lots of kind of fun exercises I think we're going to go through today. So we assembled, we assembled two guests today. And we assembled, um, one was an estate planner who we've talked to before. We'll we'll get to that in a second. We also are talking to a, a CPA in the tax side. And then lastly, we'll have Abby, Curtis and myself go through the financial planning and and investment considerations of being awarded a large sum of money at once. So with that, our first guest was recently on episode number 39 estate planning mistakes that lead to probate litigation and helps your clients prepare themselves and loved ones for life events by designing personalized legal documents to carry out their wishes and protect their assets. Our guest is on the executive committee for legal services for the elderly in Maine, the Maine justice action group, a member of the Academy of Special Needs Planners, and an advisor to the Peaks Island Fund, a Maine Community Foundation fund. She also teaches elder law as an adjunct faculty at University of Maine School of Law. She was a member attorney of the Maine Center for Elder Law LLC prior to the center, merging with Perkins Thompson, PA in September of 2019. Please welcome Barbara Schlishman to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast so Barbara well welcome back we uh we're, we're assuming that some of the listeners to this show in particular have it maybe maybe they haven't listened to episode number 39 where we covered estate planning mistakes that lead to probate litigation with with yourself so or they might or maybe in terms of they miss maybe the, the episode five where we had the foundational conversation about estate planning but we want to always kind of cover the some of the basics so would you just start with some of the brief brief basics about what is a trust
3: Sure. So what is a trust? That's a common question that I get. So I do estate planning and in estate planning, people often will decide if they want a will-based plan. And we know what a will is. And then a trust-based plan. And um, so a trust is, it's an entity or a form of ownership that puts it into the ownership of some of another entity Um, A corporation is a good example of the same concept, and people can often understand that when a corporation owns assets, it's not in their individual name, but in the name of the corporation. A trust kind of works the same way. A trust is an entity, and the formation of a trust is fairly simple. It's where I, as the grantor, give you an actual asset to hold into trust for myself, and I have to identify who the beneficiary of that asset is. So you've got, you know, the grantor who creates the trust, a trustee who manages the assets but does not have any ownership interest, and then a beneficiary who benefits from those assets. And sometimes the same person can fill all three roles, or you might have different people in all three roles. It really depends on the purpose of the trust. So the purpose of um, the topic we're going to talk about today depending on somebody's circumstances, they might have any one of those designs or forms of trust.
1: Yeah. And Barbara, I think that's, that's something where again get from from the topic we're talking today, which is really the idea of sudden wealth, right? So I've won the Powerball and all of a sudden I've accumulated all this maybe money or will eventually when I, when I claim the prize, but you know, I, I think that's why I wanted to have that conversation with you here about, Hey, estate planning and a trust. So can you talk a little bit about why estate planning is important? And especially in this case, maybe when someone's wealth grows really over time or, or very suddenly, yeah. right. And, I think that's something where – because from our end, I know we covered this in our previous episode – but almost to a T every client that walks in the door with us and you ask them, Hey, where's your estate plan? And they go, well, geez, I, I did that when I was you know, 27 and it was the back of an envelope type thing. And, you know, it was, it was really just, who's going to take the kids. Well, now it's a different problem and I've accumulated assets. So typically the answer is no, I don't have an estate plan. Yeah. And so you can talk, can you talk about why that's important, but especially in the case of have hey, accumulated wealth, or I suddenly got wealth, say, in the case of uh, a Powerball lard- lottery winnings.
3: Great. So this is uh, this has been a fun topic to think about. And pulling back, looking at the big picture, the first thing I need to mention, I think it's a great topic because we all hear the news stories about people who have won the lottery and five years later, they've gone broke or they've committed suicide or they've been murdered. or So there are all these stories where things have gone really bad. Um, and so it makes you think, well, why is that, right? You would think if we just had all this money land in our lap, all our problems are solved. But every, not every day, but many days we hear these news stories where quite the opposite happens. So it kind of triggered me to think about the idea of, of wealth is, it happens in three steps. You know, one is the earning or the of obtaining, And then two is saving, which is a habit. And then three is growing your money, the management. And so if you look at that, if somebody has sudden wealth, like they've won megabucks, they've won Powerball, they've gotten the big leapfrog on that earning phase. So the money, they suddenly have all this money. They didn't have to go through the long earning phase. They've gotten it. And so that puts them into, well, how am I going to save and manage? And then how am I going to grow this money? And I got online and I just looked up, all kinds of um, lottery winner stories gone bad. And there was a common theme among them. And the reason people had bad experiences for the most part that I saw were substance abuse is one, right? Where you're making bad decisions because your addictions are controlling your decisions. Substance abuse, just poor management, poor planning, which we're gonna talk about. And then a really big one that ties right into both of those is the inability to say no, Because you get inundated with requests from family, friends, charities, business opportunities, all these things that come at you and people cannot say no and they're spending money at this incredible rate. But I think what we really want to look at are what are the control, st- control structures? What could protect people from potential substance abuse? What can protect people from predators or not even predators, but everybody asking for something? And that's where the planning comes in. And so I think that's what we would talk about. What are the ideas for that?
2: Yeah, so just going off exactly what you just said. So say we have won the lottery all of a sudden, why is it so important to surround yourself with fiduciaries, Right. And so what is a fiduciary um, and how can you tell if somebody is a fiduciary or, or is not a fiduciary?
3: Right. Okay. Good question. A fiduciary is somebody who has a legal duty of care to make decisions that are in your best interest. And this is somebody who, if they fail to do that, you would actually have legal recourse against them. And even, so you all know this, even um, in the financial planning field, there are some financial planners who are legal fiduciaries and there are some who are not. So that's a good distinction. And, in and my I'll, work in a state I'll, I'll,
1: I'll interrupt for one second, Barbara. And yeah. of uh, so in our role, we, we are fiduciaries. Uh, yes. Just want all three of us here. So <laughs> we don't accept commissions. There's no kind of situations with us where we can take that fiduciary hat off and put the uh, uh, suitability interest uh, or uh, suitability standard on uh, for that hat. So I just want to make that point about our, our roles and in, in, from a legal sense as well. An attorney also has to be a fiduciary as well, right? Yes.
3: Yeah. And the nice thing that clients can know coming to people like you who are fiduciaries, they don't have to be worried about being put into financial instruments like annuities just because you're going to earn a commission off of that.
1: Right. So,
3: mm-hmm. I strongly encourage people to use people who are legal fiduciaries. So, in estate planning, what we do, we we appoint fiduciaries in our life. When we appoint an agent under power of attorney, that person is a fiduciary. You know, if we're no longer able to sign checks or pay bills, we've appointed somebody the personal representative or executor in your will. That's a legal fiduciary to your estate. So in this context of sudden wealth, people are going to be dealing with amounts of money that they are not accustomed to dealing with. And they are going to need good advice and people managing that money. So you're going to want people giving you advice, managing the assets who have a legal duty of care to you, to where if they make poor decisions, you have legal recourse against them. And it's not just that, but if they have that legal liability, it's their profession or their job or their duty to make appropriate decisions for you.
4: So, Barbara, I want to rotate to a term that I think we hear kind of frequently when we're talking about this amount of money, and that's generational wealth. You know, we see it, I think, more commonly to speak for myself, like I see it with like professional athletes and they sign these huge multi hundred million dollar contracts. And I say to myself, well, their family is is fine forever. Um, But I think in this situation of, you know, coming into wealth so quickly in a situation like the lottery, I guess what I want to ask you is how can a good estate plan um, and legal structure really kind of protect that wealth for the, quote, everyday person who comes into wealth um, and for their family for future generations?
3: So generational wealth, the planning comes in, it starts with the first generation, right? You, You accumulate the money, you're managing the money. And there are things you have to plan for. Number one, you have to plan for estate taxes. And mm. there's going to be further information on that. But just to touch on it, when somebody has to pay estate taxes, right now that can be up to close to like 40%. So that can take a big chunk out as assets are transferring to the next generation. Mm. So you want to plan for that. You also want to plan against poor decision making. And you do that by creating trust and appointing trustees who are fiduciaries to act as gatekeepers to the money. You know, trust can be designed in a number of ways. And it can be designed that the trust um, spends X percent of the principal a year or the trust can only spend money for certain purposes. Or you just have... A fiduciary, the trustee who has discretion, but at least you have a gatekeeper. And I think that's very important, especially because one of the biggest causes of losing sudden gain is the inability to say no. You get an independent third party in that role to say no. And I, as I thought about this, even the person winning the assets should set up a trust with a trustee for themselves because as all of these asks come in and potential investment opportunities and loans it would give you the flexibility to say i would love to help you but in order to you know make make this sustainable or manage my assets or whatever I've set up an independent third party who is managing this. They've got a certain fund. They've got a limited number of assets. And I'm just asking that all requests go to that person. And that way it takes the personal element out of it. You're giving it over to a trustee at a bank or a trust company or an attorney, you know, whoever you select.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And so with this generational idea, you have these fiduciaries in place first they can help you generation number one then you set up the planning for tax planning to help limit tax liability but in addition to that to set up asset management for the next generation to where there's can be certain benchmarks and it can also be the next generation can access the money at a certain age they can access the money upon achieving a certain requirement And that's how you begin to create generational wealth. And you also can begin to utilize different tax structures and direct where the money goes, have different pots that are subject to different tax rules. Hmm. And just one more kind of very sophisticated way to plan, but is often used. You can skip, you do generation skipping transfers which is another um, tax strategy. So that's it's very important that you get good advice from an accountant and an estate planning attorney mm-hmm. to set these structures up.
1: And maybe just to define generational skipping, right? So what you, what you just kind of laid out, Barbara, is, hey, if uh, you're transferring money from one generation to the next and you keep getting taxed at 40%, right, on, on each generation that it gets mm-hmm. handed down to, if you skip to maybe two generations down, say you're... Say you're 65 and you have grandchildren that are five, then then you could skip directly to gifting directly to that generation and avoid that kind of extra layer of taxation if that's where ultimately you want the money to go. Right? Is exactly premise there exactly.
3: And can I just add on that? And it's not that you're entirely skipping that generation because you can set it up that the assets are available in a fund for that skipped generation to use during their lifetime, but they don't have any ownership interest upon life. They can't control where that money goes upon their death. And so that's how it. it you, you can utilize it, but you can't control where it goes upon your death.
1: Well, I want to just kind of tie two things together, because one thing you're kind of saying here is, look, uh, one way that generational wealth or instant wealth, how that goes wrong, is this kind of premise that, hey, um, you know, I can't say no to anybody, right? Is everybody hits me up and we're, we're kind of talking about this. But really, one of the biggest issues, too, is You know, pre winning the lottery, the reason why we actually play the lottery or why we're buying the ticket, because it represents infinite possibilities of using money. Right, mm-hmm. so it's like, well, I can buy the airplane. I can, you know, jet set and see Tom Brady, uh, the Bucks um, against the Patriots here, and I can be at the, you know, right on the field, right with them, whatever. Right, it represents all of it, right? And, and I think that's that's something where. The reason why we buy it, and I think when what that rep- that ticket represents is the idea of infinite possibilities with money. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the hard part, then, the actuality of when you, if if somebody does actually win it, is the idea of hey, because it represents so much infinite possibilities, not only to you, the person that won it, but now everybody's looking at you as the as the source of infinite possibilities for themselves. Yeah. Right. And in this concept of having legal structures in place, so that allows not only me to say no, but allows my money to say no. So it, it really allows for the highest and best use of it with whether whatever I want to do. And again, you're, as you said, Barbara, is your control of that trust document, mm-hmm. right, is you want to set it up. So, it, you know, every year you can go watch, um, you know, the New England Patriots at, uh, at you know, center field or something. And that's, that's one thing that you do every year I, whatever you want to do, you can kind of structure that. But, uh, but I I could see where those two ideas are in, are in conflict, right? Is what I want to do pre buying the ticket is maybe not what happens post by post winning that lottery. Right.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. And I think what you started to touch on, you know, we jumped right into talking about getting it to the next generation and, and planning after you have the money but I think what you're starting to touch on it's really important from the very outset how you even receive the money um I think one of the ways to slow the the flow of requests for funds would be accepting the money anonymously and there are ways to do that and that you can start with that right with your trust from the outset and um what I would say, and this is not true every state, some mm-hmm. states you cannot accept it anonymously and in trust, but in Maine, you actually can. So what you can do, so remember we said a trust is an entity. Well, rather than me going and accepting the money as Barbara Slishman and being in all the media coverage, having won the uh, mega bucks, you know, I could create a trust. I can create a trust that is you know, seaside trust And I can send my trustee to go and accept the funds for seaside trust. And nobody has to know that I'm the person who created that trust and Mm -hmm. I won this money. And so it's kept private. And, you know, you could start out if if it was time sensitive and you needed to do it quickly because there are deadlines on when you have to respond in Maine, you actually have up to a year to Mm -hmm. claim your funds, but You know, you could set up just a simple living trust if you needed to. And what that means, it's a trust that you can continue to amend and and Mm -hmm. shape to be exactly what you want. But you get a basic trust created, get a trustee in place, send that person to accept your funds. And and then you don't have to have your name in the headlines, and that's going to right. slow the flow of requests. And you can keep it as private as you choose at that point.
1: So, Barbara, I want to then ask you about this then, right? So, so you, again, you, I think what you're raising is a really big point. Is hey, I I found out on the news that I got all the numbers, and I you know I I've won, right? I have it in my hand right now. And by the way, this lottery ticket is a bearer asset, right? So whoever holds the the ticket is who actually won the prize. So if I if I'm walking down the street and I have a hole in my pocket and that lottery ticket falls out, whoever picks that lottery ticket up and then brings it in, now they they've won and I have not. So I could see where there's a lot of concern, I've won, I'm, you know, I'm so excited and ecstatic about that possibility that I want to claim it as soon as possible. And what, I, what you just said was, well, you know, pump the brakes there a little bit. If we could maybe set up something from a legal perspective that gives you some anonymity in here is, mm-hmm. is maybe one thing that that allows you to do. So can you talk about, all right, I have this ticket. I am in a hurry, right? I, I need to go claim this right now, this very moment. But I go see an attorney and I hear, you know, I've listened to this podcast and I hear Barbara telling me I should go set up a trust. Okay, and I'm not trying to pin you down in t- terms of like what a, what your, the exact timeline it can be, but what, what is the typical timeline to craft a trust, have it be a, a fully functioning legal entity? Like, are we talking, you know, six months to do it? Are we talking a day? What What's the general timeline it takes to do some of that just to even get it in place to accept a, a lottery ticket in this case?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the, the estate planning process can typically take a couple of months from start to finish. But here's the thing if somebody calls and they say, I'm the mega bucks winner, I need to go collect this ticket, they could literally come in and sit down in the office. You know, I sort of clear the morning calendar. We could, you know, if it's feasible, you could sit down and draft a trust and get it signed even in one day. Hmm. Now, future clients, I don't want, oh, everybody holding me to a one-day turnaround, (laughs) but I'm just talking, technically, a trust is literally, you get the document in place, the grantor signs it, they appoint a trustee, they name a beneficiary, you fund it with a nominal minimal amount. You know, today, attorneys often put $10.00. Historically, attorneys would say that it was funded with a peppercorn, <laughs> you know, so you yep. have to put something in the trust to actually for it to exist, but it can be a one day, one day
1: event. So question then, Barbara is, mm-hmm. okay, so say I listen to this podcast after I won, after I've claimed, is it problematic for someone to have just claimed the prize personally, and then just assign the prize to the trust?
3: no. No, I mean, you know, you still got the publicity issue to Mm -hmm, deal with, but at that point you could still say, well, since I've collected my money, I've set up an entity, a trust, and I've put somebody else in charge of managing the assets. You know, you can certainly set it up and keep however much you want, but no, you could transfer the money and put it into a trust. Yeah. Hmm. And one, let's just touch on this bearer instrument concept for a minute, because in thinking this through... I identified what I think is a little bit of a a problem to be aware of if you're a potential megabucks winner. So if you read the lottery guidelines, they recommend, because it is a bearer instrument, that when you get your ticket, you sign your name on the back, right? You want to claim that ticket. Mm. The problem with that is, I think this is a problem. If you do that, well, then I don't know that you can set up a trust and have a trustee collect, mm-hmm. right? Because you've got your individual yeah. name on the- So then it struck me, maybe the better, best strategy is if you're a lottery player, get your tickets, keep them extremely safe, like in a lock box or a safe deposit box. Mm-hmm. And then if you get a winner, then you can put the name of the trustee on that and then the trustee can go and collect the mm-hmm. funds. Mm-hmm. Now that's kind of sophisticated lottery play, <laughs> I understand <laughs> But you know, you're asking my opinion, and I, if you were going, and then if you wanted to go even one step further, you could actually create just an empty trust like a trust is a bucket that holds assets. You can set up my seaside escape trust, and I just have it sitting there waiting for the trust winning or the um, lottery winnings. And uh, I'd be good to go.
1: That's a very confident play right there. (laughs) That is is like this is gonna happen. I just a matter of when. I guess what I asked Barbara is so if you put the trustee though on that ticket, couldn't the trustee goes, Well, that's just because I won it, not because I'm the trustee of the trust.
3: No, because you would have you'd put their capacity as trustee on there, right? Mm. I would put Ben Smith, comma trustee, and maybe even the name of my trust. Hmm. And you would then be my fiduciary. And if you decided to take off to, um, you know, Las Vegas with my winnings, then I have a legal claim against you because you've got this
2: fiduciary duty that you owe me.
1: Yeah, okay. just one of the one of the make that point. Yeah, and- no, that's
2: a really good point. Yeah. Um, So you kind of touched on this earlier, but the publicity issue surrounding lottery winnings, right? So people Uh seem to come out of the woodwork when you win the lottery, right? Whether it's relatives or, you know, a coworker that you were with when you bought the ticket and maybe it was their money that bought the ticket. And so you can see how all sorts of issues could arise from this, right? So are civil lawsuits common against lottery winners, Um, And how can a good legal structure help, you know, guard against some of those lawsuits, potential lawsuits? Good. Okay. Yes. So (laughs) in my
3: preliminary research for this, lawsuits are abundant. Mm -hmm. And one of the most common that I was seeing is, you know, how people put together like pools where they put money in, like say in a workplace and Mm -hmm. everybody puts in $5 a month, and then you buy tickets Mm -hmm. and then there's a winner. Well, there have been cases where the winner takes it to the store wins and then doesn't share the money with the fellow contributors those lawsuits people lose those lawsuits so what i would suggest is if you meaning the win the um the person who has taken the money they mm-hmm. lose typically lose those lawsuits yeah, right but what i would suggest for people contributing to those pools Again, I know I'm taking. I'm an attorney and I'm taking it too far in some people's minds, but write it down. Get it mm-hmm. in writing that, hey, we're all putting in money in this pool. And if there's a winner, the intent is that we are all going to share the pot because that's one big source of lawsuit. Another mm-hmm, mm-hmm. source are former exes and former boyfriends and girlfriends and so the way to protect one um if you have agreements with people to share funds you sort of need to honor those otherwise what happens is the money it's just like the money that we currently have i think it's only protected as much as what we currently have and there are public policies against being able to set up trusts and hide your money in a trust away from creditors. So if you have legitimate creditors, Mm. I'm gonna say for we mainstream people who aren't banking offshore, Mm -hmm. We're typically not going to be able to hide our money from creditors. And that goes for Maine. Well, if you look at the um, the Maine statutes on lottery winnings, if you owe child support, if you have back taxes, if you have debts debts to the state, money will be withheld from your lottery winnings before your money is paid out. Mm. So there is that if there are legitimate claims, you can't hide the money from legitimate claims. But the other piece, these potential lawsuits. One way to do it, if you're married, you equalize the estate or you put more of the assets into the spouse who's least likely to be um, sued. You could set up an irrevocable trust, which is another type of trust that would give you creditor protection. With that, you do give up certain rights and claims, but it could protect the money for um, for the family. So there are ways to do it, but I will say it is hard to keep your money for your own benefit and hide it from creditors or legitimate claims. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know anybody can file a lawsuit and then you still have to defend it and go through the process. Even if you're gonna be the definite winner, it, you still have to pay an attorney and go through the process. So again, using a trust could keep the money more private, make you less of a uh, lightning rod for these lawsuits. I think that would be a way to look at it. Hmm. Does that make sense? I, I touched mm-hmm. on a lot of things right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no.
4: yeah, no, that was great. I want to rotate again here to the idea of gifting. So mm-hmm. you know I think it's a common thought that you know if you know if I won the lottery, I'd think I want to help out my family or relatives or whoever, or charities, even what I guess what I want to ask you is kind of what are some things before I consider gifting money of this wealth that I should consider? Yeah.
3: Yeah, so for the most part, gifting is going to be okay. You know, if it's truly, let's say these are gifts that you definitely want to make. It's not where you feel like you're being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people worry about the tax implications of gifting. Right now, that's not that big of a concern for most people. If you win megabucks, it becomes a concern. We'll just talk about the numbers for a minute, even though that will be covered in more in depth later. But right now, you can die- and leave $11.45 million without paying an estate tax. You can give away $11.45 million without paying a gift tax. Mm-hmm. Now that those laws are changing in 2025 and it, those numbers will probably drop to around five to $6 million. So if you're one of these big winners, this is gonna be a definite concern.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So with gifting, Number one, you can make charitable gifts, they're not subject to taxes. So that's a great way to use it. And the idea of gifting is important for the estate planning, because we want to get assets that are going to appreciate out of our estate, right? Because they're going to keep growing, and then you're going to owe more taxes on them. And as important as taxes are to the running of our society, you know, there's nothing wrong with also doing tax planning, Um, because they created laws for this exact reason to support different public policies. So charitable giving is fine. Gifting on a regular pattern can also be beneficial. Right now, we can give away $15,000 per person with no tax consequences. So say you have you know, three grandchildren, you could give each of those grandchildren $15,000 a year without any tax consequences. That's $45,000 a year. You don't have to report it. It doesn't get clawed back into your taxable estate. So those are the kinds of things you could work with an estate planning attorney to identify, well, would gifting be appropriate? Who should we give gifts to? What should the gifts go into? There are other techniques where you can set up, um, ir- like I've taught, referred to irrevocable trusts. Mm-hmm. You can also set up, I was thinking about a life insurance trust, but I don't know if we would need that except maybe to cover estate tax planning. Mm-hmm. People hear about ILITS, an irrevocable life insurance trust. You should talk to your attorney further about that, but that's a that's a trust that if you did need to generate some more money to cover estate tax liability, that's a trust that receives a life insurance policy, and um and you would spend down your money by covering that life insurance premium. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit sophisticated, but mm. you know the takeaway is that there is this idea that you can create a life insurance trust to cover estate tax purposes. But right now you can die with over $11 million, not pay any estate tax. A couple, a married couple can pass on 20 over $22 million right now without paying estate tax. And um, But that will change in 2005, 2006. So lifetime gifting in this case would be very important. If I had a Megabucks winner come in, that's one of the first things I would do is create yeah. a gifting plan.
1: Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. I think that was, it's kind of what you're getting to, Barbara is is really like having all this plan of well, what do I want to do with the money? What what's kind of some of the things that are important to me and or say my spouse? And what are our values? What do we want to see happen? How do we want to have influence in terms of future generations? Maybe none right? Um, maybe, you know, you, you hear some families that are just, they they want to see uh, societal good come out of that. And maybe it's all going to be a charitable gift. And they don't want to have money, maybe money influence, um, you know, kids and grandkids and generational behavior, yeah. right? So all I think all those things are trying to figure those things out, which is I think why the estate planning process is so very important, right, is figuring out what we want to do, where we want to go, how we want the assets to be to moving from, point A to point B. And as you said, minimize taxes along the way. So because mm. it can go to maybe the the causes that you want to, that we're more passionate about, whether it be family, uh, charitable, uh, organizational, whatever that might be. I think that's really important. I know Abby Curtis and I will will cover the financial planning end of that and try to talk sustainability. So mm-hmm. but we wanted to get your thoughts, uh, again, from the legal angle here today. I thought this was a really great, uh, really great kind of uh, discussion about kind of some very high level, let's get into lottery and Powerball and what are some things to know. Any kind of other parting shots here for first, Barbara, about uh, Powerball or lottery we should consider?
3: Yeah, I would just say, I mean, I loved the topic because in reading about it, your heart actually does go out to these people who win and then they have these tragic experiences. I'm just going to say there was one where This guy wins the lottery. He goes out for a celebratory dinner with family and friends. By the end of the night, he is in the hospital, very sick and dying. It turns out somebody at the celebratory dinner poisoned him with cyanide in hopes of getting the money. And so I guess that's a very dramatic example, but I think money changes people. And I see this too, when people die and people are starting to inherit and, Money changes people. And so I think the planning is so important. I think, you know, to to go slow, do it anonymously, so you don't have all these external pressures, and set up protections even for yourself. Because the dramatic change in lifestyle, what I was reading, it really can lead to if somebody didn't have a substance abuse problem, the change in lifestyle can often lead to a substance abuse problem. Mm. So you just can't predict. So if you can get a trust set up, you get a fiduciary in place to help with your own decision making and then get a plan in place for charities and giving to the next generation I think we can avoid these tragic stories that we read about. Um, I just think the planning is so important. And one other thing that struck me, people need to be realistic about how much they have won Mm. because there's a big difference between somebody who wins $1.5 million and somebody who wins $65 million. And I say that because if, if people aren't accustomed to having extra cash and they get one and a half million dollars, they think, oh, my God, I'm rich. And they go out and buy a house. They start tr- these exotic trips. And this is where you guys will lead into one and a half million dollars does not support that lifestyle. Yeah. So you need to definitely um, build the financial planning and budgeting into what you want.
1: <laughs> Well, and I, I think that's the whole concept here: is retirement success, right? Is if I'm 32 years old and I've won 1.5 million dollars in you know lottery winnings, well, it's going to be probably pretty tough to quit my job and to make one or two large purpose uh, purchases and then continue to sustain uh, a certain lifestyle over time. That might not work, but you know, for some people, uh, you know, we've, uh, we we ha- I think in the financial advisory world we have this. Kind of question about defining who's wealthy. You know, the person that has one point five million dollars but spends one point five million in two years is not wealthy. You know, the person that uh, you know lives on you know Social Security at uh, sixty seven and is spending twenty thousand a year and lives on twenty thousand in Social Security but has one hundred fifty thousand dollars of extra savings. That person's very wealthy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's where I think we already kind of define it. It looks really different because I think we assume a certain number that that means that there's going to be a a, a status that goes with it. So I think you're right on, Barbara. And I, I think this is a great lead into uh, our little roundtable we'll have about financial planning and trying to get sustainability of that money and what process we would help through folks through. So, Barbara, really appreciate your time on the topic, because, uh, again, this is a really important one, again, for, you know, I again, it just highlights, takes a yellow highlighter to how we work, right? Is that, I think it's regardless of sudden wealth or accumulated wealth, this is a very similar process. So can't thank you enough for for coming back, being a repeat guest and uh, going through this with us today. Appreciate it. It
3: was fun. Thanks you guys. Thank you. Okay, take care.
1: It's really good to hear from Barbara. I think she she brought a lot of great points, a lot of expertise. Again, especially around the idea of uh, kind of Powerball and how to legally protect ourselves uh, mm. from maybe ourselves and and kind of other other areas that we should be concerned of, and we can use um, use estate planning to do that. So. What we want to do is rotate to our next guest and talk a little bit about the tax perspective, right? When all this money, what's going on from a tax perspective? What should I know before? What should I know during the year of what you won? What about after? That's kind of where we wanted to go. So with our second guest, our second guest joined BBSC Certified Public Accountants in 2015 as a senior account with seven years of experience in public accounting and is now a principal at the firm. He works with small to medium-sized businesses in a variety of industries, including real estate development, retail companies, service providers, and construction companies. He advises on prepares returns for partnerships, corporations, and individuals. He handles the firm's personal property tax programs administered by the state of Maine and local municipalities, the BETE and BETR programs. He currently serves as a treasurer for Camp Capella in Dedham, Maine, and is on the board of Amicus in Bangor, Maine, and the Ronald McDonald House Charities of Maine. He lives in Bangor with his wife, Nikki, their dog, Nana, and their three cats, And in his time off, he enjoys traveling with his wife and friends, as well as campfires in his backyard, game nights, and attempting to play golf. At this time, I'd like to welcome Justin Freeman, CPA, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Justin, appreciate you coming on. No, thanks for having me. Well thanks for uh, thanks for talking today because I know uh, we're, we're, again we're talking lottery we're talking powerball you know the the dream big type thing going on but you know those that are kind of thrust into that situation we wanted to have that conversation about especially from a tax perspective right about you know here's some things maybe prior to claiming the prize maybe maybe during your claiming the prize and then for years afterwards how can we just minimize taxes so that was that was really what we wanted to tackle with you today so we really appreciate your expertise uh, you lending a few moments with us today. So love to just kind of start off with a with a quick kidding question. So let's just start off with how lottery winnings are taxed Do lottery and gambling winnings get treated as personal taxable income?
5: they, they do uh, it's, it's added on to your your ordinary income just like your wages just like rents just like investment income it will get added to the bottom line, be part of your adjusted gross income, eventually taxable income and be taxed on your federal 1040 and and potentially your state tax returns, depending on which state you live in.
1: And just to define it real quick, right? So then if it's being treated as personal taxable income, so whatever my income tax rate is, right? And as obviously, depending on the the earnings of those winnings, and if it's Powerball, then it probably is very big, but that that, whatever the kind of the tax bracket is for income is going to be Treated there. So, can you just talk a little bit about how federal and state taxes work with lottery winnings? Yeah. I, I guess my my question really is around, you know, say I bought a ticket in another state, or I did go to Vegas, for example, and I I got a big jackpot there. How how does that work with lottery winnings?
5: Well, well, so remember that our system that we have set up in the United States is a progressive tax system. So, say you say you work uh, and you and you make. $80,000 a year, um, and you go off and you win a million dollars in Vegas on, or, or you win a million dollars here in Maine example, on, on Megabucks, the million dollars would be added directly on top of your other earnings. So you start at a base of $80,000, which which on a married filing joint return is taxed in the, the 12% marginal bracket uh, your, as your marginal rate. So on top of that, then we're going to add a million dollars of income on top. So we'll go up through the system because we have that progressive structure. So the next $80,000 is going to be taxed at 22%. The next 150,000 is going to be taxed at 24%. 32%, 35%. And then once on a married filing joint, you get above $600,000, you're going to be taxed at a 37% marginal rate, which is the top rate right now. Again, for the state of Maine, uh, just I'm throwing Maine because that's where I am right now. The top bracket in the state of Maine is 7.15%. So the bulk of your income in that level is going to be taxed at 7.15%. So really for the bulk of anything over a million dollars, really the bulk of your income is going to be taxed at Potentially 43, 44%, depending on the state that you live in. Hmm. Interesting.
2: Um, And so, when should a lottery winner consult a tax professional before they cash a ticket? Ideally, I'm assuming.
5: Ideally, before because a lot of the lottery winnings and, and I, have never, I'll be honest, I've never, uh, never had a Powerball winner. Um, <laughs> I've had a, I've had a five hundred thousand dollar megabucks winner, pretty good, and I've had uh, some game show winners. But a lot of the times, uh, what we'll find is, is they won't withhold necessarily at that top bracket, especially for those larger earnings. Mm -hmm. They'll hold withhold at 20 percent, 10 percent for federal, maybe. And what ends up happening is we have a surprise at the end of the year, unless you do talk with a tax professional and says, you know, hold on a second. Maybe we need to withhold a little more. or Maybe we should make an estimated tax payment of some sort, you know, because what you don't want is at the end of the day, we all want to make some money. And if we make money, we pay tax. We're happy. That's fine. But we don't want to be surprised. Uh, being surprised on April 15th is never a joy for anyone the tax preparer <laughs> the, the client it, it's never a joy so so if you don't talk to the tax preparer before you cash the ticket at least talk to them quickly afterwards so you don't go splurge uh, all of your money on buying that new yacht or that new airplane or that you know six castles in Europe um, make sure you save a little bit of it for taxes
4: I want to keep going here Justin so I think a big decision that everyone faces as a lottery winner is either do I Take the lump sum, or do I take the annuity? From a tax perspective, when would it make sense for someone to take the annuity versus the lump sum, or vice versa?
5: So, so I uh, this is going to sound awful for accountants, but but a lot of the time, I generally want the economics of a transaction to determine what we do before we look at the taxes. Uh I have people ask me all the time, should I buy a car? Should I go do it? Should I buy equipment? Let the economics speak for itself before we look at the tax. Don't let tax decisions drive the decision making. And the reason I say that is because at the end of the day, I'm never going to tell a client not to take more money. I'm never going to tell a client to lose money on purpose because taxes, I just said 44%, that still means you're keeping 56% of the money. Uh So even at the highest bracket, you're keeping the majority of your money. So I'm never going to tell you. So so if you think you can earn more money by taking an upfront payment versus an annuity, regardless over time, maybe I save a little bit of tax by taking that annuity upfront. But over time, I'm going to have more money in my pocket by taking more. So, so if I have an investment advisor that says, well, the annuity is great, you know, they're giving you 3% or 4% on your, on your money, essentially, rather than, you know, maybe the investment advisor can earn
1: 7%. I'm going to take the 7% all day long.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I like that. Cause well, I, I think that's, that's a really good point. Just, I, I like how you said that too, because um, I think in the client meetings that uh, Abby and Curtis and I have is, you know, I, I think sometimes that we have clients that are so, Uh, much focused on being tax efficient all the time, I think they're kind of sometimes forgetting that they're on the same team as the government here, right? Is that, hey, if you're making more money, yes, you're paying more taxes, but you're making more money too, right? So if you're trying to say, hey, I want to minimize my tax rate, well, that might mean that you're also minimizing your income too, and you're not keeping as much. So it just-
5: We, I mean, this extends well beyond Powerball, Megabucks, lottery winnings in general. This, ex, this extends all the way out to, to just making basic business decisions. You have a client that comes in at the end of the year. Hey, should I go buy a truck? Do you need the truck? Is it going to help your business is it going to improve your business is it going to is it going to increase your revenues next year let's have those conversations before i tell you to go spend sixty thousand dollars on on a brand new truck because i get a tax deduction because at the end of the day and this any tax uh, really tax efficiency tax planning tax minimization it's a timing tool. Over mm. time, we're going to get to the same place. I mean, you look at the biggest tax giveaways there are, right know, lifetime exchanges in real estate, Roth IRAs, traditional IRAs. I mean, they're just timing. And yes, maybe we can reduce tax later in life. We put money into a 401k and we're at a lower bracket down the road, but you're still going to take the money out paying some sort of tax at the end. So it, at the end of the day, it's all timing. And the same thing could be said about that annuity versus versus taking the lump sum. So if an advisor says they can do better than what the state can or, or the gambling commission can, I, I would take more money before I look at my tax differences there.
1: Hmm. I like it. Well, yeah. that, that's that's some really cool advice. Thanks for that one. Uh, just I want to ask another question about obviously a, a popular way to play uh, lotteries and You know, especially things when you hear, you know, Powerballs at a billion dollars and it gets everybody really excited. And so you hear this, uh, the concept of the office pool comes, right? It's like, all right, everybody in the office, we're all going to put some money in and we're going to buy just a bunch of tickets all as, as one group. So... In those situations, wherein that actually works, right, is how does how does it work from a tax perspective? Do really the people get taxed differently if one person claims a prize and distributes to the coworkers versus hey, we're all coming forward as a group and we're claiming it all as one uh, one kind of party uh, in in total?
5: Yeah. So, so I actually haven't run into this case, but but I've read about it a little bit. And what I've read. Is that if you if you divvy up the the earnings on that uh, the lottery winning and, and it's written down and it's clear that you know this was purchased by multiple people, then it does make sense to try to divvy up the tax liability across the pool of individuals. The reason being is because of that progressive tax system we talked about. Everybody right. gets to use that tax structure from zero to six hundred thousand, which is that max bracket. If we can move, you know, even if we're talking about million, $10 million. If you have 30 people and we can use, you know, that $600,000 buffer before we get to that top bracket, we're going to reduce the tax liability a little bit in that case. Now, I, I, like I said, I've just read about that in some cases, maybe one person has to claim it. I'm not entirely sure on how that's going to, but, but if one person claims it, be careful, you know, make sure before you divvy up those funds that the tax is taken care of so that one person doesn't get hit with all the tax and, and the rest of the individuals carry, uh, or, or just get the the earnings from it. Gotcha.
2: So since lottery winnings are considered income, as we've been talking about, um, if I buy a winning ticket in a different state, so we're in Maine, right? So say I buy a ticket in Vermont, do I pay taxes in my home state or the state where I purchased the ticket?
5: So I know there's differences among the, among the states I think Connecticut for example I think if you win in Connecticut I think you get to claim it in your own state California I know they they really like their money out there so they they much rather uh Nothing against California, but um, it's a pretty high tax bracket out there. But I, I know because I had a Wheel of Fortune winner out there that got taxed in California. But what will end up happening is is, is generally multi-state, multi-state taxation is a pain in the rear. What ends up happening is a lot of those times, those states may collect tax in that state, and you may owe, owe tax to that state. But what, what ends up happening is you're only going to pay tax to one state. So in your residency state, you're going to claim all of your income including those winnings. Your residency state will generally give you what's called a non-resident, or excuse me, a, a non yeah, resident tax credit, which is going to be taxes paid to other jurisdictions, mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. will reduce your liability on your home state. So one way or another you're going to pay it to one of the states it's going to be a determination of where it goes generally it will be the state that you bought the ticket in but you're going to get a credit on your state tax too so you're only going to pay to one state
2: interesting Hmm.
5: and and that i i think and i i haven't run into this case before either but say you bought in new hampshire a a no income tax state or or tennessee or florida or washington any of the seven states that don't have income tax I believe you're still going to probably pay tax at your state level, because you're not going to have a credit for taxes paid to that other jurisdiction. So I would I would expect one way or another, you're <laughs> going to be paying that state income tax. And unfortunately, when you're when it is when you are dealing with multi-state taxation, you're probably going to end up paying tax at the higher of the two rates, because mm-hmm. the the credit that you get may not offset the credit, say, for California, for example, who might have a 10 or 12 percent income tax. Where Maine only has seven, you're not gonna get the credit for that 12%. You're only gonna get credit for seven.
1: So, Justin, quick question on that. So, we run into sometimes this with clients who like they retire and they're looking to get residency in another state, right? To lower their state income tax rate. Yep. This This is just a really off the wall theoretical. So, say I won the Powerball in like February. Yep. What would, would I like immediately move to New Hampshire for example and then like be resident <laughs> Before residence? you claim the ticket
5: would be my guess. Uh, right. <laughs> the the, <laughs>
1: the problem with that the only reason this is
5: the states. um the states get very aggressive on who owns the income. It is the only time I have ever seen Maine Revenue Service criminally prosecute someone wow. is when they and, and this it was a very it was a very egregious case they don't like that if, if you're the 180 day rule for the state of maine the or 181 day rule for the state of maine the states get very protective on on where the money is and so the state would probably consider you a part-year resident until the date you moved gotcha so when do you establish residency when do you you know move your domicile would be the real question my guess is you're not going to get away with it
1: interesting not to suggest tax evasion here at all <laughs> but
5: a hundred percent that's one of the and you guys know this too in, in 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 the investment world is is accountants all the time recommend if if somebody's income is entirely based on retirement distributions uh social security investment income there's i mean 100%. We'll, we'll tell a client they can save 7% of their income just by that's moving right. to New Hampshire or Florida or or another no-tax state. I mean, it, it's, And that's uh, a great way a to get thing.
1: basically get an extra investment return.
4: Yeah.
5: I mean, it's guaranteed 7% that you're going to mm-hmm. see that you wouldn't have expected before. It's, it's, yeah, who's not going to take seven extra percent?
4: Mm-hmm. Exactly. I want to rotate a little bit to an idea of kind of charitable giving. So I think a lot of us think that you know if we do win the powerball win the mega bucks i think i'd i no i would think that i'd be pretty charitable with with the extra money from a tax perspective how much can something like charitable giving help reduce a tax bill over time from a big like mega bucks or powerball winner
5: well really i mean when we're talking about numbers this size million five million ten million whatever the number billion when you talk about numbers that size we I mean, forget forget the the standard deduction and all that kind of stuff i mean those are those are small numbers at this point sure but at numbers these large that large you're really going to get almost a dollar for dollar deduction on your your contributions up to 50%, or I think it's 60% now. So you're not, you're the deduction allowed for charitable contributions can't exceed, I believe it's 60% of your adjusted gross income. Okay. But you'd have to give that away, anyways, just to get there. So you, sure. in a lot of cases, you're not going to give that much away. You're going to give a portion away. What you might find, a lot of people, and I don't know if you guys handle these a lot, but donor advised funds and other other funds, that may be a good way. If you don't want to give an organization $5 million today, but you want to do it over time, maybe you can use like a donor advised fund to get your charitable contribution in a big year, but still have some control over it to be able to say when it's going to the organization. So that might be an opportunity for someone. Hmm. Uh, but yeah char- charity for an individual uh that's not a business owner let's say for someone you know what's what's tough is and, and I have this all the time we have individuals that come in they have a w2 job uh maybe some investments tax planning for them is is difficult um hmm. there's not a lot of options out there we've got our retirement accounts we've got our health savings accounts we've got charitable giving there's a state planning potentially if they're if they're large enough to be to have a state planning, um, which may be coming down next year, uh, mm-hmm. depending on what the the Biden administration looks at for changes there. But from an individual side, there's just not a ton of opportunities to save save a lot of tax. Completely different story with business owners, and we can, I think we can cover that a little bit towards the end. Maybe if you're a business owner, there might be some more opportunities available to you. But mm-hmm. but yeah, charitable giving is probably the biggest opportunity because. your your retirement contributions are going to be capped at some point your health savings account is going to be capped at some point Mm -hmm. you know taking advantage of any of your work programs your dependent care coverage you know that kind of stuff those are going to be capped at some point so so charity may be the biggest opportunity to save some tax
1: so, so Justin, in that, in that case, then because again, what what you just described is charitable contributions really or deductions really help against adjusted gross income, of which it, obviously year one you have all the lottery winnings, right? In that year in which you uh, won the lottery, feels like that's probably the biggest opportunity, almost right 100%. right out the get go, yep. right? To to kind of do that lottery uh, that charitable giving from there.
5: Assuming you're assuming your your income is going to drop the next year, which we would expect. Uh, yeah you'd want to get as many you'd want to get as many contributions heck if you want to make a lifetime of contributions and use some kind of donor advised fund or uh, some kind of trust a charitable trust of some court uh, of some type that would be the year to take advantage of it Uh, I mean if you said you know I'm going to give away half of it over the course of my life maybe you can use a charitable remainder trust or something to get uh, that half in immediately get your deduction for it because you're never going to get I mean, let's assume you're never going to hop back into that top bracket again. Might win uh, again if you win, a bil- <laughs> if you win a billion dollars. Maybe you will. The uh, you you guys at the investment world could probably turn. Uh, turn a pretty good chunk of change on a billion dollar investment. So, (laughs) but, but yeah, that's the year you'd want to take advantage as much as you could.
1: Yeah. And I want to just take a second, Justin, because I think you're you're bringing up a really good um, tool out there that actually the three of us have used with our clients more and more recently, especially is that this concept of that donor advised fund while we like it is um, you know, a lot of times if say I want to, you know, give away whatever amount of money, right. Is let's just kind of use a ordinary everyday gift say let's we're going to give a thousand dollars away is something we want to do, but you know for whatever reason, maybe we had a really good year in our business where we made we had a bonus maybe from work, something like that happens. And maybe want to give more this year, but I don't want to signal to that, you know, that organization, my church, that nonprofit. Hey, by the way, um, I'm giving you five times what I normally give you. I'm going to give you $5,000 this year. Because you know, sometimes the next year you get the well, five thousand, by the way, Ben, Abby, and Curtis, that was really great. Thank you for that. But could you do six thousand dollars <laughs> this year? And then six is seven. So the expectation turns up. So what we like about that donor advised fund is it actually acts as this kind of charitable organization that can hold the. You get the immediate deduction for that charitable uh, donation, but then you can give away the that money over time. Is it, that you can you so you can continue to to kind of send that out over or a period of years or something along those lines, which is I think helpful from a look. I'm in a hurry. I want to give this away. And sometimes organizations, it, it's a slower process to do something, and and this kind of breaks that up and allows you some more flexibility, and more thoughtfulness about where you're giving, how you want to give, and structuring it. So, again, I thought you brought that—that's a really great point you brought up, Jess. I want to make sure to define that for a second. And really, uh, if you look
5: at the average everyday American these days, I think last year or two years ago, ninety-four percent of Americans were now using the standard deduction almost we're, we're almost no one is getting any benefit to charitable contributions at this point. Mm-hmm. So unless you and a lot of it has to do with the cap on state income taxes and property taxes and excise taxes at $10,000 without being able to to deduct your state income taxes past that $10,000 unless you have a giant mortgage or or you're making significant charitable contributions almost no one's getting benefit to those charitable contributions anymore. You know, mm-hmm. albeit withstanding 2020 when we had the $300 deduction for COVID because right um, Um, because of the pandemic, but but other than that, I mean, if if you're going to have this one year that pops, and then you're not going to be able to utilize charitable contributions again for a period of time, and I'm not talking if you're a billionaire, I'm talking, you know, if you want a million dollars or something, and you're giving $5,000 away or something every year. You know, Maybe that donor advised fund is, is a way to get the contribution deduction in, in the year that that you want it and be able to con- continue contributing and have that deduction in your pocket. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And so in, in our previous segment, we had Barbara Schlishman from Perkins Thompson talk about a trust, right? That a trust is really a great vehicle to receive Powerball winnings because it can protect privacy. It can help with lit- against litigation liability, but also can help with continuity of our money, right? So it's this idea of generational wealth. A trust could hold that, and it could just in, kind of bypass some of the the probate process of passing money down from one generation to the other. So, from a tax perspective, could you just take a couple moments and talk about how does a trust receiving those funds help from a tax uh, tax perspective?
5: Well, well, remember, so so when we're talking big numbers here, so let's let's not look at that box Let's look at the, yep. let's look at a bigger yep. one. If we look at a, a big number here. There's really two taxes that we have to look out for. You've got your income tax structure, and then you've got your estate tax structure. Um, and trusts are going to be huge on the estate tax side of this. And remember, estate taxes, well, you know, for years, we haven't really had to deal with them. Uh, we've had a $5 million exemption that went up to an $11 million exemption, that when you're married really turns into a $22 million exemption. Mm-hmm. We've had these huge exemptions those combination of A, those may be going away, or or at least the size of those may be going away. But also when you're talking really big numbers, you know, a billion dollars or something, trust may be a way to start getting around some of that estate tax. And at those really large levels, the estate tax, I think it goes up to 40, 40 plus percent of the assets. You know, that can become really expensive upon the death of an individual that has those assets. You know, all of a sudden we're only getting 48, 45 percent of the total assets to the to the the beneficiaries when you count in the 12% estate tax for the state of Maine, 40% for the federal. So there's so there's really an opportunity with trust to avoid that from an income tax standpoint. There's different types of trusts that are out there, so I, I'm not a trust expert by any means, but um, you know some of them will pass out the income to the to the uh, individual that won. That may be something you want to look at. What you probably don't want to do is leave the income inside the trust to be taxed at the trust level. The trust tax rates go up very quickly, where the highest tax bracket, I think, for an individual starts at 600000 for a married filing joint return. I believe the highest tax bracket in a trust starts at 12000 or so, um, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit higher than that. So you, you just want to be careful when you do set up one of these trusts, which really are used for estate tax purposes and uh, anonymity. You know, just be careful of the income side of it as well, because there there may be some ramifications there.
1: Hmm. And, and Justin, especially when you say, hey, uh, you know, this, this concept of winning a Powerball and you win hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars is the concept of generational wealth, right? It's almost like these athletes, you know, the LeBron James out there that gets hundreds of millions of dollars of contracts and endorsements. You know he's working really hard to secure that because he wants only his kids to be financially secure, but his grandkids and so future and future generations. But you know if he if he was not what you're saying is if he was really not uh, smart and sound with how he's structuring that money. Yeah, you know, if he's giving away, I know he's with Los Angeles right now in this moment. So California's are talking about. But. You'll never know where
5: he is next. Whoever the next winning team's going to yeah, be.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, from the AEC. Tax perspective, hey, if he's giving away half of his money just to give it to his kids, and then his kids take that, and then they got to give uh, for probate, uh, they got to give away half to their kids. You know, quickly you can see where the money has uh, quickly dwindled down and has been given really to the government at that point. So,
5: and that's probably a good reason to use gifting during your lifetime. I mean, if you're married and you have a spouse, you can each give $15,000 each uh, to as many individuals as you want. So, if you really- Really, if you win a whole bunch of money and you want to take care of uh, your family, just remember me. Um, you can give them up to thirty thousand dollars a year. See, so this advice just costs thirty thousand dollars a year to the next Powerball winner.
4: Yeah.
5: Um so so yeah, I mean if you and your spouse want to give thirty thousand dollars to each of your kids and then each of your uncles and each of your grandparents, I and mean, you can give an unlimited amount of money away through your lifetime just through gifting, and you don't have to file a gift tax return as long as you keep those amounts under that fifteen thousand dollars per person. Hmm. So because that's that's one good. way to start moving money out of your estate.
1: Because of the theory of that, right, is if if I, I ultimately do want to give this to certain people, isn't it better just to, one, gift it while possibly I'm alive so I can at least see them enjoy it is one. But two with that is, hey, isn't it better to minimize or lower my kind of total value? One is whatever the thresholds are, maybe I want to get underneath that threshold if uh, yep. if it is kind of in my personal name. But two is, you know, with that, hey be able to to kind of give that better than giving it to the government directly right over time so again it kind of this there's this philanthropic uh, feeling this have hey, helped people i was fortunate am i able to help others with it but also you know to really hurt help myself right as i can do something that maybe limits uh limits that taxation over time uh but also see people enjoy it yeah Good question
2: um, so kind of as a wrap up question, are there any other tax tips for lessening the tax burden on these big lottery winners over time?
5: So, so I mentioned individuals and, and an individual that has a W-2, that, that's that's difficult. You know, the year that you the year that you win maximize your retirement accounts as as Curtis and I were talking about before just i mean maximize if, if you're going to be charitable over the next decade be charitable that year and 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 get as much out of your your account as you can then if you're a big gambler i mean you can write off gambling winnings against that but i so so track your if you have lottery tickets if you're down at the casino if you're if you're playing scratch tickets i mean just keep those receipts because you can take a deduction for, for uh, gambling losses. Uh, against gambling winnings. I wouldn't suggest you try to put a million dollars. I mean, unless you're really heavy down into horse racing somewhere on your return. But if you if you, you know, spend, you know, four or five hundred bucks down at the casino or something, then you know, throw it on there, you'll get a deduction for it. Hmm. Business owners is a different case. If you're a business owner and you have a business that you actively participate in, you you materially excuse me the word materially participate in, and you're looking at maybe down the road, you are going to buy that truck or you are going to buy a big piece of equipment or maybe you're a contractor and you're looking for an excavator there is the potential there that if you're looking to i'm never going to tell you to lose money or spend money unnecessarily but if you have five years worth of assets that you're going to purchase that's going to improve your business Mm. and we can take a big legitimate big loss in those years because we're allowed i mean right now under the regulations we're allowed to accelerate the expensing of equipment and vehicles and stuff there's a, a way we could have a big loss on your business. Then there, then we could, it, we, we could actually have some tax incentives there because we're taking a big loss in that highest tax bracket. Maybe we're not in that highest tax bracket the next few years as we're paying those off and utilizing those. So, so if you're a business owner, there's some more opportunity out there, you know, maybe you start up a solo 401k with a pension, with, with a, with a profit sharing plan, and, and you're able to put $60,000 into that, you know, as a deduction. I mean, there's opportunities for business owners that a little bit beyond what you would have as a, as an employee.
4: Hmm,
1: thanks. Well, Justin, I, I think that was uh those are some really great points. And I know we want to have a, had kind of a nice, robust conversation. So Appreciate you keeping it light too. And, and kind of oh, making yeah. sure this it, is an enjoyable conversation for everybody. Yeah. A, Honestly, if we... the, the,
5: the taxes will be your, uh. We'll be the will be a small concern if you do win a billion
1: dollars uh, on the Powerball. I'm willing to write that check, I think. Yes, me too. Well, thanks so much for coming on our show. Really appreciate the advice, and um, we'll, ta- uh, we'll talk to you next time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Justin. All right. So we got, we just did obviously Barbara Slishman. We've now done Justin Freeman. I, again, Justin did a great job. I think covering a lot of what we're asking around lottery winnings and taxes and how do we minimize things and how that all works. So I, I thought it was a really good kind of rounded explanation he gave us uh, for, for today. So we'd love to just kind of go in from the the third leg of the stool here, right. Is to talk about, you know, talked about estate planning and, and legal issues, Talked about tax, but maybe the other thing, which, which is kind of our, our wheelhouse here, right? What, what, what about financial planning? What about, what would I do with the money? If I, if I won that much, how would I structure it to make sure it's sustainable? Not only if maybe sustainable for my lifetime, but what about for the next generation and the next generation? And in some of this is trying to figure out, well, what are my goals? What do, what am I trying to accomplish? Uh, What do I want to see the money used for what sort of relationships do I want to have my life and how does this play into it? Yeah. I think by planning those things out, I think that can lead to more successful outcomes. And, and I, I think that's something where, look, there's a lot of statistics of, of how lottery winners are not successful. So that that's what we want to do here for this next, next segment. So Abby and Curtis, myself, will walk you through some of those issues there the first issue we really want to walk through with you today is the big one in terms of you get asked the question right out the gate. I've won the Powerball. And are you going to take a lump sum or are you going to take an annuity payment? And just for those, just to level set the, the language here, so annuity payment would be a equal stream of payments over a set period of time, right? So maybe it's a maybe it's a twenty-year period where um uh, again say, it, say it's a, a billion dollars. Maybe you're receiving something like fifty million a year for twenty years, right? So that that's what we're, when we say annuity. That's what we're really kind of talking to here is that you don't get it all at once. You get it uh, equal payments over a set period of years or, or time there. So in regards to, again, lump sum, they give you all at once. Then you, as Justin described, you get tax on it. You might uh, have a pretty big tax bite out of that lump sum all at once. Usually the lump sum is a little bit more discounted, right? Is it, you don't get all of that money when you're getting quoted the billion dollar money. It's usually an annuity is how that's being described there. But some of the concern, that um, just to kind of maybe introduce the concept here, one thing that we we've uh, see with whether it be lottery winners that we've we've helped over the years or you know, things we've read about obviously Powerball winners is a little bit of an issue around the annuity payment, is I think when we uh, receive the annuity payment, we kind of almost count all of the money like we have all of it today. Mm-hmm. Right. And let's use that example. Say we got a a billion dollars and we're going to get 50 million a year. Well, geez, again, 50 million a year is still an ungodly amount of money, right? (laughs) And you'd think it would be really difficult to spend. But what you find here is that, um, that a lot of lottery winners that we see, especially on the annuity payments, they spend like that they've received the entire amount, Right. So they they spend maybe maybe it's 80 million in the first year, even though they only got the 50 million minus taxes. Right. So they spend all of it there. And of course, well, hey, I got more money coming in next year and the year after I can continue to spend it. Well, I think the problem being when you when you're spending really outstrips uh, the payments that are coming in. It causes a lot of financial pressure right it, it causes a lot of a lot of concern about maybe bankruptcy right as if if your creditors really come knocking and you owe thirty million dollars uh, yes you might be getting fifty million dollars next year, but the interest on that and the terms of the loans that you agree to could be a big concern there so again euphoric winners really generally end up spending more than their annual payout check and accumulating that insurmountable amounts of debt That that's a lot of what we see for an explanation of why uh, why we see some financial challenges and bankruptcies and difficulties um, as as lottery winners. From a lump sum perspective, though, right? You also have the other challenge of hey, I received all this money at once. Say I didn't get all the billion. Maybe after taxes, maybe I got three hundred million. But as Barbara kind of talked to a little bit about is there's a lot of common pitfalls of receiving all that money at once. I, I assume that first of all, spending, it, how are we spend that much money? <laughs> just say, just spend, 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 but also there's other ideas like investment scams that you're going to get targeted on, right? Is everybody's going to look to find a way to profit from your money. A lot of real estate projects start being engaged with. And I know Abby, you were you talked to real estate with our podcast um, in, the, in the early stages there, <laughs> but also giving is maybe we're over giving to friends and family. Everybody then goes to the handout. So I think that, that can be some of the pitfalls there. So I guess what I'll ask from you both is, and I'll, I'll I'll wait to hear your answers and I'll give you mine. Would you, would you choose the annuity payment? Would you choose the lump sum payment and why? Let's start with Abby.
2: Um, So personally, I would choose the lump sum payment for a couple of reasons. Um, The first one being, it gives you a little bit more flexibility upfront, right? So um, you don't have to worry about planning for that money coming. You have it all at once and you can decide your goals with it. Set up, you know, if you want a trust or something like Barbara was talking about, you can do that all at once with the money. And it just gives you more flexibility going forward, right? So if you did want to do a big payment on something, you have the money right there without having to go into debt like you were talking about, Ben, um, waiting for the other payments to come in. You have it all there and it just gives you some better tools for planning going forward. And also you can invest all of that money at once and, you know, yeah. hope see where it goes. So personally, I would choose the lump sum payment. <laughs>
1: Cool. Curtis, what are you thinking? Well, what oh, would you
4: do if you were in that situation? It's a tough one. I think you know. I think I would go annuity here. You know, I think for a couple of reasons. One off the top, I think would be kind of spreading out the tax liability there, as Justin talked about. Um, another, I think. So I personally am. I'm a big budget guy, so I think knowing kind of a schedule going forward. Um, again, I know it's adjusted and things with inflation, uh, but you have kind of a schedule there of of what you're going to receive for the X amount of years, again, not uh, forgetting about the, the, the concerns you expressed Ben with, with overspending each year. But I I think I would, I would use the budgetary uh, kind of side of my brain and I think I would choose the annuity there.
1: Yeah. And and I'll, I'll kind of add is uh, obviously what we're saying too, is we would be doing the math just like we do with a lot of, a lot of people with pensions, right. As they, (laughs) they have this decision, right. Is this lump sum at pension uh, retirement or annuity, There's a math component here, right? Is what, what is the terms of the, of the annuity, right? Is, Mm -hmm. are they saying there's a certain return they're kind of doing? So what's the break even between the two is some of this, right? Yeah. Because you got to look at what the return is that they're, they're saying they can provide versus what do you think you can do? And there's a little bit of longevity of yourself, right? Is so in Curtis, I know you're saying the annuity part, you know, somebody that's maybe 92 years old that wins the Powerball, you know, maybe they go, geez, a 20 year annuity payment, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, you know, maybe I'd rather kind of be able to have access to this money because um, mm-hmm. I don't know how long I'll, I'll be around for the next 20 years. So there, there's, I think those components, I, I think I'm, I think I probably would, if, if again, me personally, I think I would I'd be with what Abby's saying here on the lump sum. Mm. Again, I, and from the investment perspective, also knowing a little bit more about, Hey, there's sometimes a distrust of government, right? We've talked mm-hmm. about that in, in this podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And do I really like, again, they, they've, they've I always make these annuity payments. They, it all works. The money's in there from the lottery fund. It, it all works. But again, there, there, there's a level of skepticism of, Hey, is that really going to be there? Cause I know you promised me this money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I get it, I know I got it and I got uh, as much as I could out of that process. So again, I think there's, there's that there. Uh, But for me, I I think I would probably go the lump sum and then be able to kind of manage it from there. Mm
2: -hmm. So then that brings up the next big question, right? Which is how to invest the money. So we all kind of touched on it. It, It's an enormous amount of money that all of a sudden you're tasked with, you know, growing or keeping safe, depending on what your goals are for the money. And so investing becomes a pretty important piece of this whole discussion. And so I think it would be helpful to hear from you both some of your thoughts around, are there tips or things that people should keep in mind? When they're starting to think about investing this money, right, this is more money than most people have ever had access to. So making sure that they're taking care of it and using it in ways that they want to is really Mm -hmm. important. So, Mm -hmm. Curtis, let's start with you. Do you have a couple tips about what people should think about when they start to think about investing?
4: Yeah, you know, I I think first off, it's important to just kind of take a break, right? You just won this huge amount of money assuming you've never had this much money before, like you're saying, Abby, and you know, it's, it's easy. There's emotions, you're excited, you want to spend it, you want to do this, you want to do that. And I think it's important to just kind of pause, put it somewhere where, you know, it'll be there, you know, take a break six months, a year, figure out that plan and just really figure out what you want to do with the money. I think that's probably a good first step.
2: Yeah. I totally agree because you can imagine that emotions are, you know, through the roof when you just found <laughs> out you won a billion dollars exactly. and you may not be making the best decisions long-term in those emotional highs. So what about you, Ben? A couple of tips from you.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is, uh, again, this is, of course, in our our field, uh, this, this topic comes up quite a bit, right? Is, hey, if somebody won the Powerball, right, it's always... Always, then, how would you invest that portfolio for them, and how would you look at it? There's two ways to look at this. Is one is an ability to take risk and willingness to take risk, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that's that's the the two big questions we look at with every client, right? Is ability-wise, by the way, you know, if you win that much money, well, again, a, you can absorb a lot of losses and still be okay, right? Mm-hmm. So that the more money you have, actually, you, the more ability you have to take risk. Is, is one of those big things but from a personality side is why would I take any risk whatsoever when I've received so much money that I, I really don't need to take any risk right what's so what trying to tie those two things together is really important um, overall so I would say first off is is figuring those two things out because if it's there's zero willingness, yes, you could go do risky things, but why, why you could just go by again, the, the, I want to say the risk-free investment in the investment world is really treasury bills, right? Is the U S government backing uh, U.S. debt. That's, that's one of the the safer investments we see out there. Say if that interest rate is again, 2%, say it's a 2% interest rate is what you can get on that, that investment. Well, if you had a $300 million lump sum, well, getting, you know, getting $6 million every year in interest without ever tapping the principal is, is not that bad of a thing. At the same time is what are your goals? And I will talk about that a little bit in terms of the dreaming part, but figuring out those goals. And if you do want to grow it for future generations. Again, you got to have the ability to take risks because seeing losses, especially at that size, might feel really uncomfortable. And if you're okay with that, and knowing that we're growing for the long term, I think that's the that's the other part. Another th- a tip I'd say is, and we do this in the financial planning end, is separating out your kind of investments into some buckets sometimes. Mm-hmm is what are what are the like the one year spending needs you're going to have what are the things that you want to do what about this is the money that maybe are for the kids and for the grandkids and other generations right. maybe that's the money that you could be more aggressive with what about the things that you might want to fund locally? Maybe, um, maybe you want to be an investor in certain businesses, a la Shark Tank. Maybe you want to provide, you know, different gifts to family members. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those really preclude in different investment strategies, based on what they want to do. So the bucket thing was with the thing I was going to point out, Abby, what do you what do you think for uh, for another tip there?
2: So something that I think is really important is finding a financial advisor that you trust and can communicate well with, right? This is a lot of money. And as Barbara kind of touched on, it could be generational wealth, right? If you set up trusts in a certain way. Um, So having somebody that you really trust, and that doesn't necessarily mean a friend always, right? So maybe interviewing a few financial advisors could be really helpful to see kind of their philosophy for managing the money and working with you and finding a good fit um, because they're gonna be a pretty integral part of your team um, managing this money going forward. So I would say to just make sure that you really know what you're investing in, right? Make sure you understand the type of investments that you are getting into Mm -hmm. um, and make sure that you've really interviewed and done your due diligence on the financial advisor that you're working with so that you can completely trust them and know that, that they're looking out for your best interest
1: yeah and i'll, I'll add to that Abby, i really like that one because I, I think sometimes it's well who do i know and where's a friend that's that's maybe right. a financial advisor right um I, I, barbara really introduced that concept of fiduciary right and yes. and that, i think that's why we we've talked to barbara and you know again we're fiduciaries and you know justin again from a tax pro, uh professional again as a cpa right here's mm-hmm. here's people with high levels of, of expertise I would also say don't hiring a friend because I think you do want that professional relationship. You think you want someone that can actually just stand there and go, I don't think that's a really great idea and here's why. If you don't like them, if you don't want to work with them anymore, then replace them, right? That's okay, right? right? Is, hey, if it's not working out, really difficult to do that with a friend, right? Is Hey, we're Mm -hmm. buds. We've helped each other. Aren't you going to help me too? And you know, this, that, that complicates that relationship. And with that much money, uh, I think being careful on um, making sure that everything's a very professional relationship and that you feel like if a change was need to be made, that you could make it. I, I I think that would be a really important point.
2: Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm.
4: absolutely. So Ben, you kind of teed up kind of where i want to go with this conversation with us and when you brought up the idea of dreaming i i think kind of a good third point here is you know we all played the lottery or whoever won this lot of this billion dollars played the lottery for a reason right Mm -hmm. you're dreaming about that trip or you want to buy that house or that but whatever you got going on and i think it's important for us to to remember like you played it for a reason you want it. So do it, you know, I mean, within reason obviously and taking into account everything we've talked about this far, but if you, you play the lottery so you can take your family on a great month long vacation to Florida or Disney world, wherever you're going, do it, go, go for it. Mm -hmm. But I think it, you know, what the three of us have kind of talked about, it's also important then to kind of part, and this is part of that break I talked about earlier. And then you come back and really work on that plan and figure out where you want to invest or how you want to invest or what else you want to do with the money. So I kind of want to flip it to, to the two of you. And maybe I'll start with you, Ben, and just kind of what do you think people should consider as they're kind of realizing these dreams? And I know we've kind of touched on it from a surface point of view here um, earlier in the conversation, but I'll, I'll kind of turn it over to you there.
1: Yeah, uh I, I think one of the things that we all succumb to a lot is um is this idea that we all um kind of chase money, right? Is uh, that money's money's the thing we're trying to accumulate over time, we're trying to build it and I think the relationship is that is that we're, we're letting kind of the money drive a lot of our life decisions, whether it be, you know, your, your career profession or your job or where you live or, you know, all that. And, and I, I could see where having that much money all at once, is that it's really easy for let let that money drive you as well. Mm-hmm. Is that all the external pressures of the world start going, uh, starting attacking you here about what you should do with the money, and I and I think it's really hard because. Uh, you know, I, we, we use the term with our clients of it's not, we're not looking for a return on investment. We're looking for a return on life. Is that what is, what does it mean to you to lead a fulfilling life? What does it mean to you? And what are your values? What do you want to accomplish? What's important to you? And how can we use that money in a way? to accomplish those things. So, you know, I, I like what you said, Curtis, around kind of building that team around you. Right. And, and really building that financial round table, which is essentially what we're trying to do here in this podcast, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We asked Barbara to the, to the show, we asked Justin Freeman to the show and going, here's how a round table would work and helping you develop a strategy to, to make that money work because 70% of lottery lottery winners go broke. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that yeah. I think when we get there, you know, the odds are one in 292 million that we actually got there. We got there. You did it. You beat the odds. And then we really don't, you know, we're, we're the dog chasing the car. And when the car stops, we don't really know what we're going to do when we catch the car, but we caught it exactly so i think i think that's the situation here with money is let's let's figure out that plan let's really kind of get that together and and i i think if you lead by values i think people would would have much better outcomes with what they're doing with the money and why versus you know i don't know what i'm doing with this money i it feels like too much I want to, I want to feel, I don't want to say no to anybody. So I'm living my values of not being able to say no. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really dangerous place to be. So yeah. that's what I would say. Abby, what do you, what do you think?
2: I would say to definitely make sure you set up a plan, right? Because I think it's easy to get super overwhelmed by all of these things, right? So setting up a plan and making sure that you have, you know, maybe even controls in place to kind of help you from overspending, right? Mm Because like you talked about, Ben, a lot of lottery winners do end up going broke. And so making sure that you have controls and people in place that help you kind of resist those things is really important. But I think it's also equally important to take that once in a lifetime trip, right? You have just won the lottery. And so what is that big thing that you want to do? And you've always wanted to do with this money. I think it's really important that that's built into your plan, right? And that just those two things don't necessarily have to go against each other. They can certainly go hand in hand and should go together. But I think making sure that you are on some level also enjoying the money without making it think of too much work and too much, you know, too much of that can be a bad thing. So enjoying it and taking a little bit of time to enjoy it, I think is equally important as setting up the plan to make sure going forward that money is sustainable. So you can do more things that you want to do with it.
1: So Curtis, what would you say again? Back to maybe the your dream. How would you? What would be your? If you're gonna, you know, use your own advice here and take your dream vacation, right? What would be the thing that you would do from a, a kind of a dream perspective? You just won the the lottery and won in two hundred ninety two million uh, odds.
4: So as someone who doesn't play the lottery, so I don't know exactly. I haven't been. This isn't premeditated. So um, off the top of my head, probably it would it would be a trip. I'd go. I'm a big golfer. Um, so I'd probably wanna make a, a bucket list of golf courses like world like and we're like big golf mm-hmm. courses like the Pebble Beaches, the Augusta National, I don't know if I I could do it, but with a billion dollars, it's probably a head start on where I am now (laughs) to be able to do it. Um, uh, Yeah, and overseas, you know, St. Andrews where golf was where golf started. So I think Mm -hmm. that would that would be certainly a a key focal point of of my dream, maybe some baseball in there too. try to, you know, cross Mm -hmm. off the bucket list baseball stadiums too. But yeah, probably it, it, you know, from a 10,000 foot view, it, it would be a trip, it would be a comprehensive long trip, probably around the world. 'Cause you got a billion dollars. Uh, so
1: <laughs> Abby, what would you do? What would be your thought?
2: Well, I would certainly go on a trip. I've always wanted to go to Alaska um, also to Ireland. So those things would be part of it. And then I think I would use it for some of our real estate endeavors, um, (laughs) that my husband and I have. So we have kind of big dreams for stuff that we're doing on that side. And so using the money for that, um, I think would be so fun to kind of kick off some of our dreams that we have from that side.
1: What about you, Ben?
4: And
2: I, (laughs)
1: Yeah. uh, Well, I guess I would do, uh, I'm a big baseball fan too. So I I think my first thought was I'd like to go like follow like the Red Sox for a year, right? Just go with them the whole season, right? Go from... April be it you know most games all the way from April all the way through and maybe that would be the year they they win the whole thing in the World <laughs> Series probably not in my life but um, but probably actually I probably am really lucky at that point if I've beaten this the lottery, is, yeah, That's this is true, true. It would probably be a good year to do it yeah. but I think probably more globally than that would be I think a, like a trip around the world I think that would be going visiting all the you know different countries Uh, spending time in different uh, cultures and and doing things all across the the globe and I I think that would be probably a pretty amazing experience just to kind of kick that off and especially for your family and your 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 loved ones kind of do that together would be a pretty cool thing to to kind of experience and and get out of the way. So I, I guess we would call Carrie Forbringer and we uh, exactly. we we'd get that all scheduled up. But I, that but Abby, you kind of made a really good point there. And I, one of the things that we're going to flip to lastly here was around practical things that we should be doing with our winnings. <laughs> And you kind of made that point. It was one of the things that we were, we were first going to say was pay off your debts, right? Yeah. And if you have, if you won that Powerball and if you have whatever debts you have, well, relieve yourself of a financial stress, right? Relieve yourself Definitely. of of any debts that you have, whether it be credit cards or mortgages or you know interest rates, all of that. And, and again, that would, that would feel like, Hey, every dollar you pay off is a dollar less you owe. And, Mm -hmm. and when you invest it, then it's now only investment that's going to come to you. So I'd say that'd be the first thing from a practical end, I guess that I would kind of kick off here in terms of this last uh, section. But um, Curtis, what would be one thing that you would say for practical advice that someone should be doing with winning?
4: Yeah. So I'm going to go back to something I kind of opened with, uh, and that's a budget. You know, I think it's important to, again, we go on your trip, do your thing. Uh, but when you're really kind of executing this plan, I think it's important to have a budget, a part of it. You know, it's, it's easy to spend and keep spending and keep spending. But whether you take the annuity or the lump sum, you know, the goal is for this money to last however long you want it to last. And to do that, a budget's a good way. You know, I think a general kind of tip we talk about is, you know, spend on the interest. You know, if you haven't invested, don't touch the principal. Let the interest be your budget. And year to year, the interest comes Mm -hmm. in. That's your budget. Spend it and do what you want. But just not even that specific. I think it's just important to, to lay out, you know, your limits and to know your limits. And like Abby was talking about, put something in place so there's a control on your budget. You know, if it has to be a budget by force, do it that way. But I think it's important.
1: And Barbara made the Barbara made that point too, right? Is she said, "Hey, you know, design that trust document. If you put your money in trust, and you know, you set it up. So here's what's allowable for you to take money from, and when, and and you set up kind of this formal legal arrangement there with the trust. um, It's kind of another way to maybe be your guardian of yourself in a way, right? Is to put up these structures so that. Maybe if you're tempted, right, is or somebody is attacking that you have that arm's length transaction of, hey, I do have a budget, but also have a legal structure, which is saying no to all these other things that while I would like to say yes to you know, what I really wanted to start with in terms of what I want to see with the money long term is really doesn't fit. So Mm. allows you that out. And I think that was, that was a really good call. Abby, what, what's something that you, uh, you think would be a really good practical thing someone should do with the winnings?
2: Plan charitable gifts, right? So I think a lot of us probably would have charitable inclinations after winning something as big as the Powerball. And so setting up something like a donor advised fund, which Justin touched on in his segment is really important. So the, especially if you do a lump sum pay, out of the Powerball, Um, you're going to have a pretty big tax liability in that first year that you get all of that money. Um, And the nice advantage of a donor advised fund is you can do a big contribution to it in one year, and then you can plan out where you want to give to charity for years afterwards. Mm -hmm. So rather than having to make a big decision as to where you want to do all of these charitable contributions at the same time, putting the money in there and then giving yourself some time to think about it figure out where you want to give, which charities you want to support going forward. It's a really nice way to use that planning. So setting up something like that, I think is a really excellent idea um, going forward.
1: And also, again, the Donor rise Fund can can provide a little more anonymity, right? Is exactly. The, yeah. If that gift comes from you directly, you know, maybe you're signaling to that charity, as we discussed in that last segment. Um, you're signaling that you do have a certain level of wealth, and you are looking, you're inclined to give money to a certain organization, and you are interested in them. Again, I think there's there's a level of trade-off here. We want to make sure that we're protecting privacy wherever we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're also not signaling um, in an over-aggressive way, so that you have everybody of that charitable organization that you want to gift to is now at your doorstep. And, and asking for more and more money. So yeah, I think that's, that's a really, really good thing, too. And I want I to want to kind of close with an idea here, too. And we always um, um, just in, in my career experience, one of the things we always talked about, or, or we helped ask was, how do you define a wealthy person? right and is it um, so you know in our in our kind of groups i've been in one of the quite one of the person said well it's uh you know a certain level of wealth or or a certain level of kind of assets or how it's growing and and actually I think the answer I liked the best was really how sustainable the money is. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I have, if I have $50,000 to my name, but I only need maybe $500 a year from it. Well, you know, that's something that can sustain for quite a long time. Right. That, okay. that can keep going forever and ever and ever. If I have a hundred thousand dollars to my name and I'm spending $150,000 a year, that's not wealthy. Right? right. So the same thing with the Powerball, right. Is Powerball is really not uh, the idea here. Is I know we're using this like very, extreme example but powerball is really not a gift of wealth right it is it is really only a gift of wealth if if it's sustainable and if you spend it all in a year or two then really what did you do with the wealth doesn't mean you didn't have a great time didn't mean that you didn't get something out of it you know but there is this kind of fallacy of and i with our open that we talked about is there's a lottery curse Mm -hmm. and and i think that's something where what we're trying to avoid with this episode was that lottery curse so is what can we put out there that can help people in this situation, but also it kind of highlights the, how we work and how we work with, you know, uh, the accounting groups and and the estate planners out there. Cause I think that's really important for, for uh, those that are, are looking for help. So we want to thank you for tuning into this one. This was obviously a much longer conversation, multi-levels, Different uh, different segments overall. I appreciate you uh, staying with us because uh, this is a new kind of format for us that we we hadn't tried before. But but if you want more information, we'll have some more information uh, again. Barbara mentioned some links. Justin mentioned some things too. Uh, so if you go to blog.guidancepointllc.com/backslash forty five, so that's for episode forty five. You can find those resources there. Again, um, really appreciate everyone tuning in. Again, kind of a nice little dream, uh, dream episode for us. But we really appreciate you tuning in. Looking forward to hearing uh, from you if you have any comments or feedback. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session